Hey, yo, what's good, Internet? It's the Harvest of Colin Atrophy, and I am very happy to welcome you to episode number 28 of Radio Harvester, uh, my radio show. The guest this month is my friend Margaret Cross, who does Golden Grove Jewelry. I'll talk about her in a sec. First, a very quick announcement um, about my newsletter, Life Harvester, which I mentioned last month. As an email, it is now in print. Um, so I'll include a link in the episode description where you can... Uh, sign up for the emails and also a list of stores uh, that carries it. If you don't see it in your town, holler at me. Let me know a cool bookstore or record store. I'll get in touch with them. I'll see about them carrying it. It's free. It's tight. Um, and if if I can't find it, if I have a store to carry it, just sign up for the emails. It's just as good. Um, on to Maggie, uh, my old friend and her jewelry company. This is one of these things where as I watch Golden Grove grow as a company um, and as like just a thing, I am constantly shocked that it's someone I know behind it. Like, uh, the degree of professionalism and just the amount that, like, it seems like a legit thing is so incredible to me. And uh, as it turns out, Maggie is just some punk from Queens. So, uh, you know, if she can do it, anybody can do it. That's bullshit. Why am I saying that? It's, it's She's very special. She works really hard. And um, this whole thing started because of a really tragic... Uh, event in her life that we talk about and um, yeah I don't know give it a listen okay bye are both immigrants my mom was born in england but uh-huh. her father was in the royal air force so she lived in like saudi arabia and oh no shit germany yeah and she moved here when she was like 17 my father was 17 when he came here from italy um you know and he had like 20 dollars in his pocket <laughs> like a definite uh you know immigrant new yeah. yorker story and like growing up it was really rare if your parents weren't born in a different country like all of my friends were either immigrants themselves or like first generation like me Mm um yeah yeah that's tight um how when did you start doing punk stuff because i know we met in our like early 20s but we had been probably at no rio like at the same times yeah i'd love to hear like your i like was trying to think about this and i can't remember like when i met you would it have been like bent house stuff? I don't. I mean, I rem- we didn't become. F- I feel like we didn't become friends till after Jamie died. Totally. Yeah. But I know, by the time we became friends, you were just such a part of like the fat. Like you were just someone that I had seen around for so many years at that point that I don't even know. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Like we already knew each other at the point that I was that we. I think our friendship truly like began in earnest. Uh huh. But. I don't know when we actually met. I wonder, so I went to No Rio for like Riot Girl. Uh huh. And I didn't go to like a lot of the matinees. You didn't go to matinees or anything there? I mean, not really. I went to a lot of shows at Coney Island High. Me too. Like, I went to every Elias Stitches show. (laughs) That was like my scene when I was like 12 and 13, you know? Yeah, which would make me 14 or 15. And I was, yeah, we were probably. I went to the Continental. Yeah. And then Damien, the bass player from the LES Stitches, would let me in without an ID. Uh-huh. And he'd be like, just promise me that you won't buy a beer. And then uh-huh. I would be like, hey, Mick, Damien told me I couldn't buy a beer. And then Mick <laughs> would buy me a beer. Yeah. It was very nice. Uh-huh. Um, I think... Um, yeah, and I went to Coney Island High a lot. Yeah. Well, I really love Lookout Records, and that's like where all the bands would play. Uh-huh. At Coney Island High. And then I met Jamie when I was... 16. So before that, though, what's your entry? Like, how do you get, how do you even hear about the LES Stitches or Coney Island High? Like, what's the entry point for a kid in Astoria? I think, um, I wonder how you just know. You just know to go to St. Mark's Place. Yeah. Like, it must have been someone wearing a shirt. Like, hey, where'd you get that shirt? And I went to Freaks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the for same sure. shirt. Uh, and then you see the, the Coney Island High bills, which I just like wallpapered my bedroom walls in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me um, too. And it didn't even matter like that I didn't recognize the band's names. I'd be like, let's go to this show and it would be a ska show. For sure. Or a hardcore show. Um, yeah, and then going to record stores and seeing flyers. Is it like a, is it like a post Green Day thing? Like how did you gravitate towards Lookout? Um, 
so I think I was like nine years old when I got the Columbia Music House thing in the mail, you know? Uh-huh. And I like loved Lisa Frank and stickers. And I was like, cool, they're sending me stickers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll send you these five stickers back. And I picked like, I remember I got Crazy Sexy Cool and Dookie. Tight. And um, I don't know what the other three were. And I was like, wow, I love this band. Yeah. And then they were on like a TRL and Mike Dirt was like, there's a band called Crimp Shrine and they have a, <laughs> a, a reissue of Duct Tape Soup. And I was like, what's that? And I and I found it. Mike Dirt talked about Crimp Shrine on T- That's how I heard TRL. about it. That's how I discovered, yeah. And then I like changed my AIM name to Duct Tape Soup and I was like so fucking into Crimp Shrine. Yeah. I still am. Yeah, for sure. Um, Those records are great. There's like something really like the like kind of chaotic youthfulness of it is like always going to appeal to me. Yeah. It's it feels the thing, timeless. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like the first Bent record I feel like has the same kind of like we're trying really hard to do a perfect thing and this is a very flawed thing. Uh-huh. That's so cool. Yeah, like I really, I don't know, I, I, I like... I can't listen to it. I haven't listened to Mental Shape. Oh, I'm sure. I like can't. Also, there were like songs about what a bad girlfriend I was, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, there's no... Yeah, I could imagine you don't want to hear But I stuff. like this idea that people still listen to it and really like it. Also, um, a few years ago, someone came to my studio and he had a bent out of shape tattoo. And I was like, what the hell? Like, you didn't mention that we had this like thing in common. Like he was just a guy buying a ring. And he was like, yeah, I'm a tattooer. And this is a tattoo that I did. And it's the cover of Stray Dog Town, which I did, which I yeah. made. Tattooed is like a belly rocker. Have you seen this? Uh-uh. Oh, it's amazing. It's Jamie's hands. We like had yeah, this no, I know funny the... joke about his hands. It was just like, we'd look at his hands and laugh and it was just like a weird inside yeah. joke that we had, but they're tattooed on someone's stomach. That's insane. And they're, you know, just a little bit younger than me. That's so crazy. I know, it's cool. Um, okay, so you hear about Crimp Shrine on TRL. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like mail ordering Lookout Records stuff. Cause I remember the moment that I figured out how to do mail order was very exciting. Or are you buying it at record stores? I'm trying, well, I definitely, I went to Generation Records all the time. All the time, yeah, I loved that place. Was there a website? Was there a Lookout website? I don't remember like a paper catalog. I would buy stuff through like ads in Punk Planet and shit. Yeah. Like I would send cash wrapped up in. Yeah, I would send money orders. Folded up pieces of paper, yeah, yeah money orders. <laughs> yeah. I think I was buying them and then I joined like the Lookout Street team <laughs> and I would just get, um, I had a zine and I would just what get. What was your zine? Um, it had a bunch of different names, but it was stupid. Yeah, <laughs> just like a per zine? Just like, uh, it's really crazy. I was thinking about this recently. I would interview bands that played at Coney Island High and sure. I interviewed Alkaline Trio <laughs> and they're like, I mean, they kind of were they weren't always goth, you know? They weren't the band that they are. I don't even know if they're still a band. No, I think that guy is in um, Blink-182 now. Yes, exactly. But we talked about Green Day the whole time. Like, it was kind of like a... I would just work it into every conversation. Yeah, for sure. And, like, Dr. Frank from the Mr. T Experience and Joe Queer. The... I... definitely was at any Mr. T Experience show at Coney Island High. There was a great one at CBGB's. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that one. I don't remember. Maybe I maybe I went there too. I know I remember seeing them at Coney Island High like once or twice for sure though. Yeah, I do too. And 15, I saw 15 at Coney Island High. That might have been another entry into Lookout. I'm not sure. I don't think I ever saw 15, but I had friends that were into them. Um, so okay, you're like an adolescent, right? And you're getting into Lookout Records and you're going to shows at 12 and 13 and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then... Which also, like, th- looking back, I, I'm from the suburbs, so I'm, like, a year behind you in terms of what age I started doing stuff on St. Mark's Place. Mm-hmm. But, like, I think about being in my mid-30s, I just think about, like, like Jesse Mallon mm-hmm. being in charge of a place full of 13-year-olds and like what it must have been, like how stressful that must have been. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that seems, I would never get into that, like run an all ages venue that serves alcohol in Manhattan. That seems like a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Like I really think that he must be like kind of a saint to have done the work to let the kids have rock and roll or whatever. 
I felt really unwelcome there. Though. Really? Like, I really felt like a kid, like a twerp hanging around. It wasn't like ABC where you were like, it was for you or something. Mm -hmm. Like, I really felt yeah. like I wasn't meant to be there. Huh. And that is probably what I liked about it and what appealed to me. Yeah. I, that's how I felt going to the hardcore matinees at CBGB's was like, but that wasn't the venue. That was like I, the, pe the other people there made me feel like I wasn't supposed to be okay. there because I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. But Coney Island High, I never felt, and this might just be like the like uh, intersection of like suburban blinders and also just like male child entitlement and privilege but I was just kind of like this is for me mm -hmm. oh right you know yeah. what I mean like I was just so stoked yeah um so you met Jamie when you were 16 yeah um it's so How like embarrassing and funny when people ask me that so there was a website called makeout club oh I remember makeout and club. I was like so not into it but my best friend Lauren Brown was oh, like Brown. <laughs> you've got to I'm gonna make you a profile yeah and my interests were I, maybe you were like only allowed to have three interests, but mine was, I don't, these must've been her words. It was walking around on garbage night, Otis Redding and Comet Bus or Crim Shrine, uh -huh. like something like that. Okay. And we matched on like all three, you know? I you don't, and Jamie? Yeah. <laughs> and she was like, hey, this is my friend. I'm gonna pretend, she reached out to Jamie and said, I'm gonna pretend that we're friends and I'm gonna bring her out to Long Island to do a show that you're gonna be at. They must have, like, they arranged this. Yeah. Um, and we'll just pretend that we're friends because like she's really not into this. I mean, like social media, like dating website yeah, no, essentially. Yeah. That was anathema at what, fifth, what was that? Like 1990? It was 2000? 99. Yeah. 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 Or 2000. Yeah. Um, so, that's so then I showed up at a show at Looney Tunes. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, she's like, hey, my friend, Jamie, <laughs> just pretending. And I was like, oh, Did cool, you buy who's it? your friend? Yeah, totally, I didn't know for a while. Whoa. And we were like instant friends, and I met yeah. everyone that day. I was like, another Vargas? <laughs> How many are there? Yeah, whoa. I, I probably met Skip that day. Yeah. Know? Yeah. For sure. And then I started going to shows at Ren's house, and I met all the women of Long Island. Right. So you, and like, but also as far as, just to back up a little bit, mm -hmm. like you talked about going to Riot Girl meetings at No Rio. I don't want to gloss over that. I do want to take a minute to discuss that. I never went to a Riot Girl meeting because I felt like I wasn't supposed to. Um, and I don't know, like I was trying to be deferential. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I always wanted to go. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you tell me what they were like? It's not dissimilar from a 12-step meeting, you know? It's kind of like a uh -huh. a similar vibe um, where it was, like, super positive, but there was, like, a lot of bitching and, like, a lot of... Well, I just think of that because of the Jane Doe thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I wouldn't say that outside of the Jane... You know, bitching, banning books or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and just, like, activism. You know? Yeah. Just, like, what are we going to do about this situation or... It was fun. It was really fun and like welcoming. Yeah. Was it mostly other teens? Yeah, it was like a lot of girls from my high school. Yeah, I met a lot of friends that way actually that I'm still friends with. Cool. Today. Yeah. That rules. Mm -hmm. um, and so then you're you meet Jamie and you're going out to Long Island for shows and you live in Queens and you're going to LaGuardia. Mm -hmm. And did you go to college? You went to college, right? Yeah. You went to Pratt. I went to Pratt. Yeah. And you studied printmaking. Uh huh. Okay. And did you move to Brooklyn at that point? Yeah. Well, so in 2001, I did a like a pre-college, I got like a scholarship for a pre-college thing at CCAC in Oakland. Okay. Because oh, I really okay. wanted to go to Oakland. Yeah, for That's sure. That's like, I would just like live in this fantasy, like I'm going to go to Oakland. Yeah, and it's going to be... When like I move out of my mom's house, you know. Uh, and me and Jamie met me when I was... I flew out and he like took a Greyhound yeah. and he came and lived and we lived together that summer in the co-op in, um, in Berkeley and it was super fun. And I thought I would go there for college and yeah. then it was like, well, this is the tuition. And I was like, oh, no, I guess I can't go here. So I got into this state-run program called the Higher Education Opportunity Program. Uh -huh. um, and Pratt is a school that participates in that. And I was like, well, this is easy. And I was like, mom, 
I got into college and she was like, why? Best Buy's hiring. I'll really? never forget that. No. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, because it just wasn't something that was like um, drilled into us. It was like, just get a job. Yeah. Um, Best Buy's hiring. I know. I always think about that. And look at you today. And look at my mom. Um, You're a so district I w- manager of all the Best Buy's in Queens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're having a sale this weekend. So. Uh, so I moved to Williamsburg in 2003, mm-hmm. and I was still working at haagen on Steinway, and <laughs> the Lorimer stop was perfect because I could take the G, you could, used to be able to take the G to Steinway, Yeah. and I could also take the G to Pratt. So I was like, this is a great midpoint, and it right wasn't- Right in the center. Yeah, and like- Did you move, did, did you get an apartment? Or yeah, did with you, Lauren Brown. With Lauren Brown? Yeah, my other friend, Sona. Um, and it was run by, this Hells Angel guy and my room was where he used to keep his motorcycles <laughs> and it just like reeked of gasoline and I was like well Whoa. there's a fire escape and it was like so cheap you know yeah and I worked at haagen and I worked at the Pratt Library which I'm going to a show an opening tomorrow at the Pratt Library no shit and I was like I used to work here and I made five fifteen an hour fuck <laughs> yeah it was cheap I at Little Armor stuff oh you live there too I lived at Lorimer and Mauger for a decade. Oh, so I was on um, Metropolitan, like right by the BQE. Uh-huh. It's funny because there wasn't anything there for me to be like next to, but like milk, I guess, is there. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there yeah. now. There was that fried chicken Knitting place. Knitting factories there. I can't think oh, of anything. Oh, you live that way on Metropolitan. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Closer like to Bedford. Like towards, to, towards yeah. Williamsburg. I, yeah, I lived south on Lorimer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I lived in that place for 10 years. It was 1,050 for a two bedroom when I moved in. And it was 1325 for a two bedroom when I moved out because I had rent stabilization. And it is, three years ago when my sister looked, it was $3,400, that uh, same apartment. Oh, <laughs> Isn't yeah. that fucking nuts? I feel like we didn't get that great of a deal because it was 2003 and it was a three bedroom for $1,200. No, it was actually really, a bedroom. That was that's, a really amazing, huge apartment actually. Yeah, that's a great but, deal. Like, he hadn't finished the floors or anything and we were like we'll take it we'll finish the floors and we never did you know yeah that's what we did we just painted the floors we painted the wood floors we just lived gray. on plywood <laughs> yeah that's real yeah when did jane doe get started what year was that probably that year did you move it did you live there no i spent so much time there yeah though. um yeah i think it started that year 2003 Who, yeah that makes sense because I went there the first time probably in 2003 or 4 um, and that so Jane Doe is you Golnar Meredith uh, no did Tara? Meredith live in the, oh yeah Tara did Grania. Meredith live in the backyard she did yeah but after That's, it was yeah. established I think a few people lived in the backyard before her I don't think she's the originator of the right of that hut the hut yeah um, right Grania yeah Lucy Oh, fuck, Lucy from Clinton Hill or whatever (laughs) with the red hair. Yeah, all right. Yeah. And then, you know, so many, like, um, other amazing people came on board. Just in and out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the original. What was the the impetus to start, like, a community space? You know what I mean? Like, like a living situation that also was going to function as... It's... I can't... I guess I'm just um, speculating because I wasn't like on the lease, but I imagine it was Tara, Golnar, and Grania saying like, hey, we have this storefront. What do we actually want to do with it where we aren't selling goods because you need like licenses and stuff if you want to do that. So um, a library and then like what kind of library? Definitely a feminist lending library. Obviously. That's how I imagine that idea. Yeah, 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 for sure. That makes sense. I'll have to just have Tara on the show later on. Yeah. And re-interview Golnar. Yeah. Oh, I have to listen to that one. I got, yeah, I might just go through, there might be like tape that got cut where we even talked about that a couple of years ago. I can't remember. Um, and I was the youngest and definitely, like I think, you know, two of three, out of three of them had like women's studies degrees. degrees yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and they were like, all right, everyone just bring your books. And I brought any book that I thought was pertinent to the subject matter and I remember Grania picking up a Charles Bukowski book that I brought like women I think it's called and she was like mm. wow. I was like I have a lot of learning to do I'm 17 years old yeah I'm a child <laughs> wow yeah what a 
like kind of adorable mistake. I know. It's really. And it wasn't, I wasn't ashamed or anything. Like it really felt like learn, you know. Yeah. And no one tried to shame you? No. Yeah. See, that's, that's very nice. Yeah. And what were you, you were just in school working at the library in the Haagen-Dazs? This <laughs> yeah. whole, and going to shows? Yeah. And like, uh, what's your artistic practice like at this point? I got really into printmaking um, by going to Pearl Paint on Canal. Like, uh -huh. used to be able to burn its grain there. Really? Yeah. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah. I remember, like, setting up all these elaborate, like, gluing felt to all the sides of a fish tank so that um, I could put a lamp, like, a reading lamp into it to make a light table. Oh. So I could burn a screen. Uh-huh. But, like, I... Couldn't, I didn't know the right light bulbs to use, so I'd just get like a 150 watt light bulb and it would take six hours to burn a screen. You could do it in the sun. <laughs> yeah, I was doing all the wrong stuff. Yeah. And then my mom would just open the basement door to like do laundry and I'd be like, Mom, fuck that <laughs> light. I killed Kurt Cobain t-shirt or whatever. Yeah. It's very... So you got into printmaking by going to Pearl Paint? Yeah, I was pretty young when I did that. So I was like probably 14, because by the time I met, um, the punks. Yeah. I was like the expert on screen printing, you know. I oh, used yeah. to sell patches at Coney Island High, which is oh, so no funny. Oh, shit. I never, I didn't make flyers or anything, but I was kind of the person. What kind of patches? Um, Like bootleg band patches. Yeah, for which sure. Which I like got in trouble for. They're like, you can't sell our merch and profit from it. You would sell <laughs> merch of the bands that were playing? No. Um, it was like. Bands that I thought were like safe to do that with. Uh huh. But someone called me out a few, you know, I was also like 15. Yeah. Um, and I was really into just making my own. I liked the replacements and I was like, how do you get a replacement shirt? Oh, I'll just make one. Sure. Um, and then just helping my friends with their screen printing needs. So it was really, and I like just associated it with punk and I liked the like repetitive process and, um, yeah, so then when I started at Pratt, I was a painting major, uh -huh. which I don't know. I don't know why. I guess it felt like more legitimate or something. Yeah. Um, like this art practice, whereas screen printing was like uh, this trade or something. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then I realized I actually really just like the process and I don't want to do this like conceptual thing. Mm -hmm. When I applied, I, when I was applying to colleges, it was, I went to Cooper Union for Saturday school to work on my portfolio, or uh -huh. like a portfolio prep program. No shit. All of my life growing up, I would get these like cool little um, scholarships to art classes or whatever, which is just like a perk of growing up in the city, you know? Yeah, like for your sure. art teacher is like, I see something in you. Check this shit out. Yeah, yeah. like this, there's, apply for this. So I went to Cooper Union and, and they um, just really like coached me and they were like, I think, you know, the new school, I'll never forget this analogy. It was like, if art was boxing, the new school is like, what is a jab? And Pratt is like, this is a jab. And I was like, oh, I want to go to Pratt. Yeah. Um, and just like learn a, a craft. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Did you have like, what did you imagine your future was going to be like? Like, did you think like, oh, I'm going to be an artist? Like, I... I was going to work at Best Buy. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought I would have like yeah. a customer service job. Oh, wait, really? Yeah. Yeah. And you would just like have an art degree and then just like get a job in a store? I... When I was in school, I was like... Okay, so part of the scholarship that I got, <clears throat> you had to maintain it. Like, you had to get good grades. Right. And um, really prove that you deserve to be there um so I was working really hard but in the back of my head I was like there's just nothing I'm gonna be able to do with this degree but I do like I would like to be like a master printer like I would like to work in a printmaking studio sure and then I'd go and tour these print shops and I was like oh actually I like I really don't want to do this yeah and I remember talking to Dennis McNutt who was he just graduated from Pratt and got his BFA, but he was teaching also. And he was like having this real conversation with me, like, what do you want to do? I was like, I kind of want to live in Oakland and make jewelry. <laughs> or, uh, and then he was like, well, who's your favorite artist? And I was like, Swoon. And the next day 
he was like, hey, Swoon's hiring. Uh-huh. And uh, she, I gave her your number. And then I just started working for Swoon. Yeah. But like, I really did have this thing in the back of my head where like, I wanted to work in Oakland and I wanted to make jewelry. All um, these years ago. Yeah. Where it was like kind of like, a, oh, wouldn't it be nice? Yeah. I moved to California three times in my life. Mm-hmm. It just, New York has like a rubber band on me, you know? Yeah, it snaps you back. Yeah. Um, so I'm, that's like over. Like I'm. Yeah. But I never stopped making jewelry. When did you start making jewelry? 2003, the very like first year. Because of the scholarship I had, um, I wasn't able to be a jewelry major because they gave me a $500 material stipend, which is like one textbook. I also have a minor in art history. Uh-huh. So it was like, you, you can't do both of those things. The right. cost of metal is insane right now. Yeah, You can't be a jewelry major. Um, so I just kept taking electives and I stayed an extra semester and um, learned casting. And just like no really shit. focused on jewelry. Yeah. I didn't realize that you had been doing jewelry for that long. Mm-hmm. And it was just fun. And it never, yeah. because of the program at Pratt, it was, it was really like metal arts. Uh-huh. And like, let's spend six months making this like really amazing special piece that'll go into a gallery or a museum. And I was like, I kind of just want to like cast bones and give them to yeah. my friends. Um, and they don't really teach you production. Right. They don't prep you to, to do what I do, but like I to think make I took the, the kind of multiples. That right, yeah. yeah. But I have like the printmaker mind, you know, right. where I'm like, I just want to keep pumping these out. Yeah, just make one and another one and another mm-hmm. one and another one. How long did you work for Swoon? Like all of my 20s. Yeah, for a bunch of years, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh huh. And that was, you were like printing for her mostly? Yeah, I think I'm I'm pretty sure I'm her first employee that she ever had. Whoa. So I did everything. Yeah. Printing and paper cutting. Yeah. And like just prepping all those big wheat paste things that she was making. Yeah, like making the art that she would wheat Put paste. Up. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And was that your first uh kind of like entry like uh introduction into the art the art world or whatever? I really didn't like see the art world. I really, because I was just in the studio. And you didn't go to any of the like events or anything? There were like, probably there were like two major openings yeah. and all the time that I worked there that were in New York that I got to go to. Um, but I wasn't privy to like the buying and selling of the art right. world. And you didn't, did you catch any kind of like, like what when you're working for Swoon making these like screen prints or whatever, are you thinking like, this is a step towards my own artistic practice, or are you like, this is a job that I have just like haagen or Best Buy? Yeah, exactly. No, I really didn't mind that. Like, I wanted to be a technician. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was easy for me to do that. Sure. And are you making your own art at the same time during this period? Um... I never stopped drawing. Like, I always have a sketchbook that I fill up. Yeah. But I wasn't, I didn't have this goal to be an artist, a visual artist. Right. Um, but I was making jewelry because people would say, they'd see something on me and be like, oh, I want that. Yeah. And I'd be like, okay, here you go and give it away. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's funny. I feel like that, that's how I, like, I have so much, right? I mean, I, sadly, I didn't hang on to much of it because I didn't think that I'd want to be sentimental about it. But mm-hmm. I have like so many articles of clothing that G- Jamie was wearing that he just gave me. Uh-huh. This fucking, this fucking city that he just gave me because I complimented him on them or uh-huh. whatever. Oh, it's funny. And then I gave you his shoes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, I was I was just writing about it the other day. There, there was this time when I had this, um, this like, butterscotch colored telecaster that was a replica of uh, Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen's guitars Mm -hmm. that I had got um, off of my dead uncle and it wasn't like an original one it was like someone that could come out whenever you know Uh, and I was in the upstairs at Ben House playing it at uh, Nasty Intentions practice Mm -hmm. and Jamie walked in and he started freaking out and he was like hold on hold on let me hold that guitar let me hold that guitar and he's like grabs it and like runs in his room and shuts the door uh-huh. and then 
he's like, okay, are you guys ready? You guys ready? And we're all like, yeah, we're ready to get back to fucking band practice. Like, <laughs> and, he, and he kicks the door open. Oh, and God. like, all we see is his outstretched leg uh-huh. and he's got a sleeveless oh, flannel shirt on <laughs> that he's changed into. Yeah. And he's got the guitar on and he's like, do I look like Bruce Springsteen? And, I love it. And we were all like, no, man, you don't look like Bruce Springsteen. And he just like <laughs> grabbed me and pulled me into his room and he was like, you gotta try it. You're taller, you'll look like Bruce Springsteen. I love this. And makes me put on the flannel shirt. Uh-huh. And then he goes out, he's like, wait, wait, wait. He goes outside, he's like, all right, kick it, kick the door. <laughs> and I kick the door and he's standing there and he's like, oh. And he looked like, you know how he would be like really excited for you but also bummed that it wasn't yes. him? And he looked like so devastated and he uh-huh. was like, you look like Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I'm gonna get back to band practice. Like, let me give you this shirt back or whatever. And he was like, you should just keep the shirt and like just slam the door behind oh. him. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I ended that? up I with so much of his shit because I would just be over at the house like hanging out with John Spees or whatever and be like, oh, that's cool. Be like, oh, really? Yeah, here, take it. You know, you want that? Literally the shirt off his back. Yeah, and he was just so quick to give me stuff that I mm-hmm. was just as quick to give it away because mm-hmm. it was like, that's the model, right? Yeah. You just like there's no why be precious about an I can get another shirt mm-hmm. and someone else can get another shirt and then like and I fa- that same band practice I found the like rubber from the front of a converse mm-hmm. um, that was like clearly like a converse tread you know mm-hmm. like you could tell brand wise and it was really dirty and like kind of black and white from street filth and I'm sure it had fallen off of one of Jamie's shoes and I sewed it with dental floss around my wrist with a bracelet so uh-huh. I was like this is a cool bracelet and it would keep breaking and I'd just like stretch the rubber more and sew it back together. And I, so I guess I was making jewelry at that point <laughs> yeah. too. Um, and it was, yeah, I wore that thing for years and then just like threw it out when it fell off. And like I think about, especially now, on like it's been 10 years since he died, I think about all of these objects that I had once held mm-hmm. that like I could hold again, you know what I mean? And I'm just like, that I wish I had hung on to. But then I'm like, should I get sentimental and hang on to everything in case someone dies? Like, I can't, you yeah. can't live like that. Yeah. Um, you know, the Marie Kondo thing that's on Netflix that everyone's talking about. I read oh, that yeah. book a few years ago. Uh-huh. And I had so much stuff that I was just holding on to like that. Yeah. And I was like, you know, it'd be great if I made like an auction style catalog <laughs> and just photographed everything and wrote yeah. next to it like, you know, a water bottle from Coney Island High was something I had four years ago because I just like held on like yeah. this is from this show and I just think that would be such a cool object to have. And the then catalog? I was like, ah, fuck it. Yeah, yeah, just threw everything out. The catalog would be great. That's a really good idea for like how to get rid of the actual stuff but maintain the like having like a totem of the memory yeah. or whatever. I guess like taking a picture of it is another thing, but there is like virtual clutter, you know, that like... Oh, also I trying to get rid of. for sure know about that. Yeah. I just cleaned out my Flickr account because, you know, if, if it, you don't pay for it, you can only have a thousand photos now. Mm-hmm. And all of the pizza and pizzeria photos on sliceharvester.com are hosted on Flickr. Ugh. And so, like, going back and changing the HTML on every blog yeah. entry would be a fucking nightmare. Luckily, all of the Slice Harvester photos is 998 photos. Nice. Like every photo hosted on that website. So I just, I didn't want to, I was going to pay for the rest of my life to have a Flickr account, you know, yeah, so that there wouldn't be perfect. dead links. Um, but I cleared everything else out and it was just like, there was some trash in there. <laughs> some very funny, nice pictures too, but like some real just garbage. Um, but yeah, okay, so you're making jewelry the whole time. You're working for Swoon. What year is it now? Like in this uh, kind of probably winding story we're telling. When did you start working? Yeah. Probably like 2006. Six? Okay. Yeah. And so you're working for Swoon. You're making some jewelry. You're going to shows. You're hanging out. Um, probably most of the listeners of this podcast are friends of ours Mm -hmm. so they know who Jamie is who like we're ultimately going to have to talk about to talk about Golden Grove I assume Mm -hmm. but like uh, do you want to talk about Jamie for a second and like kind of explain who he was in your life do you want to explain yeah I can do that I don't want to make you yeah I just yeah maybe you're right I should do it 
um, there's nothing really to explain. It's something that yeah, it's, is so hard to explain. Yeah, it's really complicated. Like I can't, uh, well I guess I'm just usually trying to describe our relationship. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't, you know, if he was, if we were married or something, I could feel like he was my ex-husband or my whatever. Right. I don't know how to describe that. I mean, you already kind of did in as much as uh, you guys met when you were 16. He was my first love. Yeah, and then also you can't listen to Ben Out of Shape because yes. all of the songs are about what a bad girlfriend you were. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then you guys still maintained a friendship somehow past that. Yeah. And that is, I think that's a good explanation. I think that's what is hard for people to grasp. Yeah. They're like, you stayed friends? You were living together? It's like a Jerry and Elaine thing. Yeah, I don't think people that aren't punk understand shit like that. No. But even people that are punk maybe don't understand it. I think there is a way that there's like a kind of tenderness that you can feel for someone who like has been kind of shitty or whatever and still be like, this mm -hmm. is a person that I love and like that I want to see do well in the world. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's not the idea that like you guys had this complicated relationship and then he like, you invited him to live in your apartment. Like, that's not that weird to me. Oh, but it wasn't complicated right. at that moment. You know, yeah, like yeah, we for were, sure. We didn't work together as a couple. Right. It ha and, sorry, we, I should yeah, say it had yeah, been yeah. complicated. Yeah, yeah. And then we were like just best friends. Just best friends. Yeah. yeah. Um, Which we can see being confusing to people. It is what it is. It's funny. Know? I hesitate to look back. Cause I like, I don't want to do undo the present. Do you ever have that feeling where you're like, Oh, I don't, I can't, I can't think about if I hadn't taken that turn. No, like, I don't. How do you, it's like so irrational, but I'm like, Oh, I don't want to think about that. I'm so I'm, I have like so much gratitude for what my life is today yeah, that I sure. can't even begin to go backwards and think like, well, what if I didn't have this? It's so scary to me. Yeah. I see that. I guess I don't think I, I, the part that I didn't get was the like, I don't feel, I don't ever feel like it's possible to undo the right, present. Right, no, it's totally know? irrational. Um, but that's so much of what I think and feel every day is irrational. So it's not like, <laughs> just because I don't get that one doesn't mean it doesn't yeah. make some sense to me. Um, I forgot where we left off in the chronology, but Same. it doesn't, doesn't really matter. You were working with Callie working, and then yeah. I just want to, I want to talk about Golden Grove mm -hmm. as like, a big project in, and I'm curious about a couple of aspects of it, but um, you had been making jewelry for years mm -hmm. and then your best friend died, mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. And you started making morning jewelry. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, so at that time, I kind of just graduated from Pratt and we were living together and I was, my bedroom was like a half studio Mm -hmm. And I was creating a portfolio because I wanted to apply to grad school and go to CCA for jewelry. Um, and then the recession happened. Yeah. And it just seemed crazy to try and apply to grad school during that time. Yeah, for um, sure. And like, you know, his death just, I, my life kind of just like paused, you know? Yeah. Um, and I made memorial jewelry for his family as a Christmas gift. Oh, whoa. So I just went to the studio. I still lived across the street from Pratt. And I would just sneak in. And I kind of knew the monitors. And I made pieces for all of his siblings and like his sister-in-law and both of his parents and my family. Mm -hmm. And it felt so good. Yeah. Um, I remember there was a quote. It was like, Grief is an amputation, not a wound. And I feel like the tangibility of jewelry, like it becomes an extension of your body. Like a, um, what is the word for a, like a fake hand or whatever? A prosthetic. Prosthetic? <laughs> totally. Like just having, so I made myself a necklace and just being able to like cling on to it just felt really important to me. And I also had a really hard time relating to people who hadn't had like a major tragedy in their life. Yeah. Where like everything just seemed trivial. Yeah, And I for just sure. wanted to connect with people who'd experienced loss. Um, 
And you know when you just have something on your mind, you like work it into every conversation? Yeah. And oh, I was yeah. just like seeking out those people. And I think I, I found them through making this work, you know? Yeah, for sure. How did it, but like it, it grew really slowly. Oh, so slowly, yeah. So I was still working for Swoon. The studio manager like liked my necklace. And I was like, I'll make you one. And I just kept making jewelry for people and giving it to them and like melting my projects because the price of metal was really, really high then. Mm -hmm. um, so like melting old pieces, making new pieces for friends and like never charging anyone. And then I did a, I did a bust craft fair uh -huh. <laughs> and they tweeted about me and I got all these requests for pieces and I was like, I guess I should start a website. And then I started a website and this I started- This is like 2010? Um, probably 2012. Okay. It was so slow. Yeah, so like the first few years, you're just making like stuff Like I didn't have a website. No yeah, yeah. Brand or whatever, no. or presence, and you're just doing stuff to- I had a name though, like from the beginning. Where did the, where's the name come from, Golden Grove? So I was at the Pratt Library and I, this after Jamie's death. Yeah. And I, there was this little section of grief, just says grief on the bookshelf. And there was a book called In the Midst of Winter and it's a poem and the very first word is Margaret. And it's Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove and leaving? And it's about this like utopian place called Golden Grove that's like bucolic and um, it's for a child to explain grief and like this is really fucking hard for you to yeah, understand yeah, yeah. right now, but um, you'll get through this is basically the message. It's really sweet. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I was like, oh, Margaret, Golden Grove. This is what I'll call my jewelry line. Yeah. So Bust, Bust tweets about me. I start a website and I start getting orders. And then it just became unmanageable to work for Swoon and fulfill the orders. Mm -hmm. And it was like really scary to make that decision to leave your job as like a pretty secure job that yeah. I've had. I think I had it for eight years, um, but I just couldn't do both, and I had to choose, and I chose jewelry. Yeah, seems like the right choice. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I mean, you got to take the, like you never know if you don't take a risk. Do you think that like I feel like so many of the people that we hung out with when we were young would like take a risk, like a much dumber risk just for the sake of taking a risk, you know? And I think about like the kind of like uh, drive to annihilate that was, I know I felt very intensely um, and is like uh, a large part of why I'm sober today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but like also I feel like it was like definitely a gnarly thing but I also learned so much and I'm like so much less afraid to make a scary decision mm -hmm. because of like, that's just kind of the doctrine of mm -hmm. the culture we come from or whatever in a weird way. Yeah. Like I remember talking to Golnar about this with the, um, the like Iranian subculture magazine that she was doing, mm -hmm. Bitarov, where she was like the only punk involved in starting it. And everyone would be like, there's this magazine, we're at, we gotta do a magazine. And she'd be like, yeah, yeah, let's just do the magazine. And they'd be like, well, we have to do this, this, and this. And she'd be like, no, 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 we don't have to do that yet. Let's just like make the magazine first and then we'll do that. And <laughs> she was like, yeah, yeah. if it fails, it fails. Like, and I know the stakes are a lot scarier when it's your whole, like feels like it could be your whole future hanging in the balance, but do you think? I think a lot of, sometimes people will reach out to me and they'll say like, I'm thinking about leaving my job and it's so scary and I think also like I didn't grow up with money and it's yeah. if I don't if I lose the money it's I'm used to it. I'm used to yeah, not sure. having the money. So I don't have that like big financial fear. Uh -huh. It's different now that I have a child. It's like I have a yeah, little bit of that. For sure. <laughs> um but I think that's a huge part of it where I'm like I'm comfortable in peanut butter sandwiches for three months so that I can buy this polishing machine or whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's also like a punk thing. I think yeah. from like the Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um And you have like you're a you're a job creator now, 
right? I know, it's You're a small amazing. business. How many employees do you have? So I've had Taylor, my right-hand lady, for five years. When I was pregnant, she just reached out to me and was like, hey, I like what you're doing. Do you ever, do you, if you ever need help around the studio? And I was still working out of my house. Uh -huh. And I was like, I actually do need a studio. <laughs> like, I need to, I can't be around all these toxic compounds. Um, I'm gonna get a studio and like, yeah, I could definitely use you so that I could take a maternity leave. Um, and she's amazing. And then I have Mimi, who's great. And mm -hmm. then it, there's kind of like, it's hard to bring someone into the environment. Like I wanna get a feel for them and their personalities. And so I always have kind of a, a third revolving person, but um, we are so backed up right now but I'm like, I think I think we need another person. So I think I'm hiring a fourth person. And do they like pack orders? Do they make jewelry? Like what is the... Uh, I'm, yeah, so I make all the initial pieces. Right. I still do all the original wax work and then it gets cast and they do finishing, mm -hmm. emails um, and shipping, yeah. Yeah. I'm, although I am taking on like a little bit of too much right now where I'm like, oh, I don't have time to design new pieces, which is why I need a, an extra person, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, what's the design process like for like a piece? Like what is the, is it, is it all based on historic jewelry? Like I know a lot of it originally was based on like historic kind of yeah. like Victorian. Yeah, yeah. Morning jewelry, right? Uh-huh. And you got interested in that because of you're dealing with your own grief, like we talked about this, this is like the prosthesis or whatever for yeah. the amputation. Uh-huh. Um, but that was like, I feel like the, the endeavor has moved on a little bit since then. Like it doesn't seem to be exclusively about sadness. You made my sister's wedding ring, for instance. Uh-huh. Um, and like, is, are you still, is that still like kind of the aesthetic, uh, entry point for a lot of your inspiration? I think it's turned much more into death positivity and talking about death and um, just celebrating life. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not so much looking back and reproducing historic pieces, though I definitely was like drawing heavily from that. Um, now it's sort of like being inspired while traveling like I was my father lives in Italy part of the year and near Naples and there's like a really amazing death culture <laughs> in uh -huh. Naples like every church has a um what's the word for it they call them cemeteries but they're like ossuaries you know or like, oh yeah 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 um in the basement, you just have to ask. <laughs> and they bring you down and they'll, they're like these shrines. Yeah. There's, there's also this like really funny superstitious thing where Italian women will adopt a skull and they'll say like, this skull came to me in a dream and they'll come and bring the skull for like flowers and cigarettes, but, but the skulls will be like telling them winning lottery numbers. <laughs> so there's like this funny like gambling kind of like felonious element to it yeah. that I love. Um, I love the like kind of cutty aspects of rural Catholicism. Uh-huh. It's really, like I get why more uptight kinds of Christians are like, no, 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 Catholics are actually polytheists or whatever, like they're not really, uh, because there's such like a folk religion element to totally. Catholicism yeah. in like, it's so wild. That's fucking beautiful that, like, some old lady is bringing cigarettes to a skull. Yeah, they shut down this one, like, that's really widely known because the Pope denounced it. He was like, this is not okay with me. Yeah. Um, Fair enough, Pope. So, something that I, like, when I interviewed Cindy Crabb a while ago, mm -hmm. we were talking about, like, and I've talked to, um, like, Kim U. Dawson about this. Uh, and, and other people too we've talked about like um, the kind of like emotional toll of like uh, being a public healer 
Oh. You know what I mean? And I like. Do you consider me a public healer? Kinda. Wow, I think it's. I think it's a little different than like. You know, Cindy is someone who has like written about extensively about like uh, super violent trauma yeah. and survival, and then like people come to her and just like disclose super traumatic shit just mm-hmm. like when she's out in public all mm-hmm. the time and it kind of sucks mm-hmm. um, and and I think like Kimya had a similar experience where she was like very emotionally available to fans and then like I remember trying to hang out with her after a show one time and there was it was right after Juno came out and she had done the soundtrack so she was like kind of blowing up in a way that was it became unmanageable to continue to have the same kind of availability but there mm-hmm. was like uh, like a 50 or 80 person line of people that were just waiting to hug her mm-hmm. you know and it's like fucking that's crazy and I was looking at your Instagram the other day and there's always like I feel like there's always people publicly just on social media writing to you and so I imagine there's also a lot of this going on privately that are being like uh my mother is dead Mm -hmm. and I have some of her hair Mm -hmm. and like I'm bereft and I need what do I do and like can I and like how do you manage just having to hear that all the time you know like because this is does that make sense my question well what does it make you feel to hear it um I feel I like it yeah I mean do you feel uncomfortable? No. Okay. Yeah. No, it feels no, really I don't, good. No, I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. To just like give people that space to feel just okay talking about a kind of... Yeah. I guess I just remember what it was like for me. Yeah. Just walking around like a zombie and then it was really hard to not bring up. My best friend just died. Yeah. <laughs> like trying to buy a dress for his funeral and the girl was being an asshole to me and I wanted to be like, my best friend just died. Yeah. Um, and I remember people's reactions and feeling responsible for their discomfort and looks of pity, you know, uh-huh. and feeling like, oh, this wasn't safe to say to you. Yeah. And just looking for people that I could confess what I was feeling. And it's like so taboo and inappropriate in public mm-hmm. places, you know? Um, and it feels really good that people can confide in me because I was looking for people to talk to and right. I get to be that person now. That's, that's really nice. Um, does it ever feel like a lot of pressure to like make a thing for these people? Like do you ever feel overwhelmed by like, I have to, I better not fuck this up. Kind yeah. of like the stakes are very high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. I feel pretty confident. I wasn't, I was also doing this stuff for friends and, you know, I'll look back at a friend's piece in the beginning and I'm like, fuck, I'm so much better now. So yeah, I feel sure. really confident that I'm doing a good job. Yeah. Um, and I really have like a little ritual surrounding it where I'm, treating it with really great care and respect yeah of course so can we talk about parenting yeah um you have a beautiful daughter thank you she's really cute she's very cool yeah she is really cool what what's going on with like how did it feel to be like i am pregnant and my business is outgrowing my like home office you know what i mean Mm -hmm. that was that like there's oh, it wasn't a, no, it wasn't a matter of outgrowing. It was like I wanted to get all of like the silver and polishing compounds oh, that are yeah. like you out know, of your home where yeah. you're sleeping. You, that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but her birth definitely motivated me. Yeah. Because I was like, you know, I want to get back to work and I'll have to pay for childcare. And then it was just figuring out like, is this worth it for me to be working these hours and away from my daughter? Am I just going to be covering the cost of childcare? Um, so those were serious things to consider. Yeah, that's real. Yeah. What is? Just talk about being a mom. Like, you seem to be really good at it. Thanks. I love being a mom. It's like a huge yeah. part of my identity. Yeah. 
Um, what do you want to know specifically? <laughs> I don't know. Like, did you did you always want to raise a kid? Like, was this a thing that kind of did you do it on purpose? Did it? Yeah, happen? she was planned. I was like, I want her to be a Gemini. She's <laughs> so crazy. That is very sick. I know, and then we missed it by five days. So um, I mean, you can't control everything. No, she's a sensitive little cancer. Yeah. It's so funny to try and talk about parenting with someone. Who's not a parent? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Why do you think that or is? Or just, uh, I wonder, I guess before I had a child, uh -huh. I wondered if people with children thought of me or like cared if I had a child. And like, I don't, you know, I don't look at my friends and think like, I wonder when they're going to have kids. Like, I truly don't. Right. Um, and I feel this like funny pressure or something when it's brought up. Like, should, are you, do you want me to convince you why it's good to have a child? Like, I don't think you should have a child if you don't want to. Yeah. I don't, no, I don't want you to convince me. <laughs> uh, or like make a case for it. Definitely you know? not. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. I just want to know. I guess like I'm just curious about everyone's experience in the world. Like mm -hmm. that's like been my fundamental, I think like one of my core personality traits since I was very young is like I'm just um, deeply curious about what everyone's life is like. What is she into? Like what are kids into in 2019? She's um, four, right? She's four and a half. Four yeah. and a half. Yeah, um, like what does a four year old get stoked about? She's she's into you know ballet and princesses stuff and like all the stuff that, that I s sort of like shielded her from. Uh -huh. like, no, you don't get to watch this horrible Disney movie where like the woman gives up her voice for a man, you know. <laughs> but she's like, I love mermaids. Yeah, and mermaids just are sick. Knows about it anyway because um, it just permeates their culture I guess at school yeah. I don't know how, I don't know how she's knows about it but um, she's into princesses ballet she's really into storytelling which is cool and we had like a little parent teacher conference and her teacher was like you know she's like I sound like I'm bragging. I'm sorry. No, she's please like, brag about your kid. Uh, Shouldn't we talk about Gus? He's not even a kid. <laughs> she's like, she's one of the most creative kids I've ever met. And I was like, really? Because she doesn't draw. Right. And like, and in my mind, like I just, you know, that really corny thing. Like I've been drawing since I could hold a pencil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and she, and she was like, no, she's like, you know, creative in other ways. She's a storyteller and has like a wild imagination. Which is so cool and makes me so proud to hear. Yeah, that's fucking tight. Are you scared of raising a teen? Uh, I think is I think if I do this part right, uh huh, it won't be. I wasn't a horrible teenager. Sure. Um, I, I, I. I'm not scared of like like when I think about my fears around parenting. Like Becca and I have talked about this a bunch. It's not like. I'm not scared of like the kid being bad or whatever. Like I feel like I can navigate that. I am very judgmental about uncool people. Mm -hmm. And I feel like 12 to 14 year olds are all uncool. You We're know what so I mean? so uncool to them though. Right. But like I had, I was like very into ska. Uh -huh. At one point I had like four pigtails. And but Jenko you would jeans love on. it. You would love it if you had an eleven-year-old that was like that. Yeah, I would, wouldn't I? <laughs> like if they weren't like that, you'd think they were uncool. Yeah, you're probably right. My friend had a kid when she was twenty-five, which felt so young. You know, yeah, we were like sure. teen mom, uh, and he's eleven now, and he's like so much taller than me, which is so funny. But his favorite band is Green Day, and I was like, I've been waiting for this for eleven years. And it's so not what I thought it would be. Like, yeah. he does not think I'm cool. He doesn't want to hear what I have to say. Uh, I don't know what he's talking about 90% of the time. Yeah. So it's going to be really, it's just going to, you know, it's inevitable. Yeah, I'm going to be this, an uncool parent. Yeah, it has, I mean, the, your parents have to be uncool even if you realize way, like, years later down the line that they, Comic Bus just showed me these he was like, I was reading these old Spider-Mans and I found these ads for your dad's stamp company. I saw you posted in the back that. Of the, yeah, I put it on Instagram and it's like these little weird ads for my dad trying to get scam kids. It was like a Columbia House scam essentially where oh, like, too bad um, I missed it. you send 25 cents 
and he sends you like five dollars worth of stamps mm-hmm. and you have to send the stamps back oh, that you like don't want or he'll stamps. send you a bill yeah postage stamps okay um, I was imagining rubber stamps no 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 he was like a stamp uh, I mean he still is he's it's it's much higher end than scamming kids now <laughs> yeah. uh, but the uh you know, and I'm looking at that, and I'm like, damn, like maybe my dad's cool. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that. That's like a cool, weird, scrappy thing. And like, I just think about him and sitting in a little storefront office, like paying for like nine months worth of ads in the back of a Spider-Man comics or whatever. And I'm mm-hmm. kind of like, oh man, I'm re-examining. Oh, that's what I, has being a parent made you re examine any of your relationship with your own parents i was just thinking so i guess the pressure to be a cool parent i just don't feel that because when do you start thinking of your parents as adult as like people like in your early 20s or whatever yeah so there's only a few years where you're uncool and then you're like wait my mom is a person and she has faults and character defects and so i was probably like 19 when i discovered that yeah yeah yeah, I definitely was like, my parents are so uncool and they don't get me and they'll never understand me. And then I remember, like, my mom had breast cancer mm-hmm. and there's, like, this whole network of breast cancer survivors who, like, mail their wigs to people that have breast cancer now. Uh-huh. Oh, that's and, awesome. like, all kinds of, like... And I was like, this is what punks do. And my mom was like, people besides punks help each other. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. like, this is... You, you guys don't have a monopoly on, like... Uh, she wouldn't use the term mutual aid but like you know what I mean like the mutual aid concept is actually like expressed in a number of different places in the world yeah also I remember you know dumpstering bagels or whatever and being like I don't know how my mom's gonna feel about this and she'd be like "Eh." and then she'd be like hey where'd you get that bread from again (laughs) like it would like she was kind of down with it yeah for sure and my mom really had this philosophy like your children are not your children, you know, and they're just these people okay. that are going to have their own, they're going to do their own thing. Cool. Yeah, she was pretty, she's pretty cool. It seems like it worked really well, like you turned out really good. Thanks. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're yeah. like a pretty solid adult. Thanks. Now I'm like, how am I putting that into action with my own daughter? I'm like I'm constantly listening to parenting audiobooks and blogs and it's something that's just I'm always it's my number one priority, you know, like play dates and Yeah. Are you scared you're gonna over intellectualize it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, you said you like drums once, right? Let's get you into those drum lessons. Like I'm definitely that, that mom. Of, yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's amazing. Like, my parents were so supportive of me. If, and, but they were also supportive of my, like, constantly switching ideas. And I think sometimes I look back and I wish they had been a little more like, no, you have to stick it out for a year straight, at least, Mm -hmm. about some of my interests. Because it feels, I feel like the ways that I'm just, like, a useless dilettante Mm -hmm. um, are obviously not their fault because I did a lot of that myself, but... What would the benefit of sticking it out for a year be? I don't like, know. Like, you think you'd grow to like it? I think you'd just grow to resent it. I think i just know how to do some stuff a little better. <laughs> and I'd, like... You'd remember more songs And I'd learn piano. a work ethic, you know? Uh-huh. Like, I don't have a, any kind of work ethic. And I... And I can't seem to get one. I keep trying. Part of doing this podcast every month is, like, trying to learn how to have some kind of work ethic. Mm-hmm. And I'm just really bad at it. Mm-hmm. And I want to blame someone. Is it? Else. Are you bad at time management? Yeah. Yeah, that was a huge problem for me. And now I only work when Olive's in school. You know, I'm like, I know I can work between nine and three, and yeah. it forces me to work. Otherwise, like when I had a home studio, I'd be like, well, I have to clean the house first, or like, oh, maybe I should make soup. Yeah, and it I do would a really lot of stuff. fuck me up. Yeah. Um, so I need to leave my house in the morning. Uh huh. Come to my studio. Uh huh. And have a time that I'm going to leave. Yeah. And then you just have to get stuff done within yeah, that time. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. And also, I, like, I love what I do now, and I, I want to be doing it. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like work, like as corny as that is. But 
really though like yeah getting like you're so backed up on orders and you have to do this and this and that and it doesn't feel like work it's so enjoyable like the process yeah. all the th- all the things i don't like i delegate you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's yeah, what yeah. The, that's what my employees are for sure sick yeah well thank you maggie uh Alan. jewelry entrepreneur and uh cool mom it has been a pleasure Thank listening to me sing karaoke to a very dear friend of mine's old band um thank you for um listening to the episode sorry i'm a fucking husk here's the thing um i kept crying while i was trying to sing along to this song i had to re-record it like 50 times i'm an emotional mess uh also thinking about dead people that i love makes me sad i think this is part of what maggie was getting at um, in terms of the urgency of making uh, the the work that she does, because I, the the person I'm thinking of died a decade ago, and still, you know, I listen to this conversation, I sing a song that reminds me of him, and I'm fucking I'm a mess. And these kind of things don't it doesn't end it does the wounds don't close you know what I mean. Um, so yeah, thanks to Cleveland Bound Death Sentence for writing this song. Thanks to Maggie for doing the interview. There will be a link to Golden Grove in the episode description. I'll include a link to um, the Ben Out of Shape discography. I made like a zip file of it a few years ago um, in case you want to listen to that. Um, And uh, what else? Um, I don't know, man. Uh, Thanks to La Cara Occulta for recording the theme song. Um, Is that everybody to thank? Uh, Fuck ice. Free Palestine. No cops, no creeps. Peace in the pizzeria. I'm out.